Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Carrie Eleveld. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast Debrief, our weekly show about politics. Today, we are going to be talking student debt relief. Why hasn't Joe Biden... He promised during the campaign that he would forgive $10,000 of student debt. At a minimum. Uh, Chuck Schumer and uh, Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker, they've been pushing the Biden administration to do $50,000 in student debt relief. So far, nothing has happened. So joining us today will be Cody Hunanian. He works on the issue of student debt relief. We'll be talking to him about what's going on in Washington, D.C. Why are things not moving? Until then, Carrie, <laughs> you know, we, we, we've been opening the show the last few, I don't know, months talking about Republican infighting. And we've, we've, we've said over and over again, <laughs> last year, <laughs> this is a tough political cycle for the Democrats. Just historically, the party in power loses an average of 30 seats in, a, in the House the first year they're in office in the White House. But... There are anomalies. One of them was 2000, after, after 9-11, 2002, right? So it can happen. And Republicans seem to be doing everything in their power to give Democrats a lifeline. And right now we're seeing an I, all I support out, that. I wholeheartedly endorse their efforts to give Democrats a lifeline. This week we saw Lindsey Graham, who there, there isn't a bigger Trump ass kisser than Lindsey Graham actually criticized Donald Trump after Trump said he would he would pardon the January 6th insurrectionists. You had the Republican National Committee censor, censure Liz Cheney and 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 uh, what's his face from um, Illinois? Adam Kinzinger. Kinzinger. Mm-hmm. I knew I was going to screw up the last name, so I, I spared myself the embarrassment. So I screwed it up for you. <laughs> Thanks so that's much. What, that's what I'm here for. Censor <laughs> um, them saying that the January 6th was what? Legitimate political expression? What was the exact Little quote? legitimate political discourse. Discourse, right. Yeah, um, discourse. And all that discourse. From the beginning, it we knew that this was going to be problematic for Republicans, right? Yeah. So listen, I mean, the Republicans have been in a... a courtesy of Donald Trump, really, and that, you know, with an assist from the Republican National Committee, have been in this hot seat for a week. Um, first, Trump pardon, says, if I'm reelected, he's at a Texas rally. If I'm reelected, I'll pardon uh, the, you know, the, the convicted seditionists. I'll pardon them. Right. Uh, and then after that, next day, he comes back and he says, I want Congress to investigate my vice president, you know, Mike Pence for not overturning the, you know, a legitimate 2020 free and fair election. Right. So then Republicans are having to answer and dodge questions about, you know, whether or not they support pardoning of the of the violent insurrectionists. Right. 
And and that's where Lindsey Graham came out. And finally, after day, you know, he kind of they they went back and forth. And then he said I mean, Susan then, Collins, right, was like, yeah, uh, I yeah. don't know. Maybe I'll still vote for him. I mean, you yeah. know, Susan Collins, my God. I mean, she she voted against him. She thought she was he was too unfit to be in office and voted to impeach him. But I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I'll still vote for him in 2024. What a loser. So anyways. So yeah. So right after the rally, it seemed like Trump would hold. But then Lindsey yeah, so, Graham. Well, yeah, and I think what Lindsey Graham in his first line he says he said uh, he he issued this like sort of lengthy statement and the first so- line of it he said I support law and order and I support the pol- you know the police um, law and order and and the police were like the main thing in the first line right and I think that was just really telling look the Senate Republicans they have been the law the supposed law and order party for my entire lifetime. And they cannot afford to be the party of insurrection, not in their view, not in the view of Senate Republicans. I mean, you know, House Republicans and Kevin McCarthy have made it a different bargain. But Senate for, for Lindsey Graham, of all people who goes back all the time on, you know, I'm out and then, oh, I'm going to go golfing with, uh, <laughs> with, you know, with Trumpy. <laughs> So, you know, he, he was a real reflection. But then on top of that, that week is capped off by the RNC passing this and they passed it on a voice vote. You know, they have like, I think, 170 members or something right around there. hundred, And there may have been like a couple nays, but they passed it on a voice vote. So it couldn't have been, you know, no one could be necessarily tagged to, you know, their specific vote. But they spent hours debating the language of that. And, you know, internally. And then as soon as they came, they came to an agreement on the language. They basically rushed it into a vote, passed it on a voice vote and thought they would be done with it. Right. Well, it was a disaster. This idea that this violent insurrection was legitimate political discourse. And they immediately, you know, Ron McDaniel, McDaniel, chair of the of the Republican National Committee, went into damage. Yeah, Mitt Romney's niece went into damage control, right? Tried to, you know, put out a statement that made some distinction between the insurrectionists and the peaceful po- protesters. That distinction Whoa. was not in the resolution. No, she threatened. She threatened reporters reporting the literal language of the resolution saying yeah. that they were fake news and yeah. she may even threaten legal legal consequences. It was it was it was totally unhinged. I mean, listen, I, I don't know. She may have done that. I, what I do know is, is that the New York, New York Times headline, the initial headline, I don't know if it changed, was Republican National Committee declares January 6th attack legitimate political discourse. And she immediately took issue with that, even though it was absolutely true. It was absolutely accurate. And she immediately took issue with that. That was just the beginning of her troubles, you know, and then and then basically it becomes an issue where, oh, well, you you go to every Republican on the Hill and say, hey, is this was this legitimate political discourse? And and, you you know, you have this series of people like you've got Lisa Murkowski, senator from Alaska, who's always a little bit, you know, indie in nature in terms of being an independent. I mean, she's Republican, but she kind of like, you know, she she has a you know, she will vote against Republicans if she really believes by conscience or. or, Yeah, she's probably the most independent person in the Senate right now. Probably uh, probably. in the Republican side in the vein of of John McCain, actually. Yeah. Most of the time she'll be a good party stalwart, but not 100 percent. 
Not a hundred percent. So she, she said, look, we can't, we can't develop these false narratives around what happened. And it's just wrong, quote unquote, to say that, you know, she took a stand right away over the weekend, but then you had people dancing all around the issue. You know, people saying, you know, like Mike McCall of Texas, representative from Texas saying, well, I'm not a member of the RNC, you know, trying to pretend that somehow he's not related (laughs) to the national party somehow. And a lot of people did that. Right. Um, But then, you know, then you, then you get a mix of people. You have like Mitt Romney who says, yeah, well, I texted back and forth with my niece and told her what I thought. But anything that my party does that's stupid, and he literally used the word stupid, is not good for us. <laughs> you know? So he's like basically saying this was just a politically stupid move to do this. But, you know, I think what's interesting. And then finally, just the capper is, is that after, you know, letting this stew for days and days, Finally, Mitch McConnell takes some time to say what he really thinks about it all. You know, and it's it's clear, like, if you really wanted to take a stand on this, you come out immediately afterwards and say, I condemn this resolution. Okay, that's not what he did today, although he did take issue with its characterization of that of the insurrection being legitimate. And he said, you know, it was a nonviolent, I mean, sorry, it was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after after a legitimately certified election. You know, he 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 basically said the direct the the direct opposite of what the resolution said. Um, and he said and Trump he, lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So right. So he, he he wants to be done with this, right? He and all the Senate Republicans always say that they want this to be about the future and not the past. And Trump keeps on just dragging them to the past, dragging to the past. It doesn't help that they have decided that they're not going to put out an agenda by which they can be judged, you know, not, no agenda of ideas for 2022 about what they want to do for the country, right? They That's two cycles Mitch, in a row because Mitch, they didn't right. do that in 2020 either. Right. Mitch McConnell said he, he in December, we're not going to do that. Okay. So they're saying that they want to be about the future, but they're not telling voters what that, what that future is going to look like. Um, and they keep on getting dragged into the past again and again and again by Donald Trump. And let's remember, they had a chance to bury him politically when he, he was uh, during his second in- impeachment. And either McConnell didn't have the politi- poli- political juice or he didn't have the will to he do that. did not have the will. And I bet you he bruised that day every single day because this cycle would be too. looking a lot different. If Donald totally. Trump had been impeached, he would have been barred from ever running again. So this notion of that he has he has heft and weight because he might run again would be completely off the table and he would be completely he's already been deplatformed from the social media um, outlets i mean brian kilmeade of fox and friends and there hasn't been a more obsequious group pro-trump group of people in the media than than fox and friends and you know sean hannity and tucker carlson right but that troika that is the has been donald trump's sort of you know propaganda arm even Brian Cummings, like Trump lost, he needs to learn how to lose. And he said this on his on his on his radio show, flat out. This is not I mean, helping. I gotta tell you, yeah, entirely. Trump's, Trump's head must be spinning. Spinning. And let me let me we got a couple of minutes before we bring our guest out. And I really do want to bring this up because I think it's 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 important. We just saw that Florida decided to they were gonna try to pass a Texas style ban on abortion. 
They finally scrapped that, and now they're doing a 16-week, is it? No, 18-week. 18-week ban on abortion after 18 weeks. And all the sponsors are like, oh, we're not banning anything. This is a compromise. And I found that very interesting, Carrie, because I don't think Republicans ever expected Roe to be overturned. And they loved whipping up that religious base for votes and for money and for activism. They had no intention on actually making good, right? So now what you're having in Florida is you have the the anti-abortion crowd losing their minds over it, right? Because here's here's the Supreme Court about to say abortion is is there's no Roe. And so states can make their own law. And you have a dominant supermajority Republican governance in in Florida and Tallahassee that uh, are not moving to totally ban abortion. And even what they're doing, there's there's no exemption for rape or incest. I mean, 18 weeks is, we, you know, we can all agree it's it's way too early. A lot of people don't even know that that they're pregnant at that point. It's showing that the politics of abortion aren't particularly looking great for Republicans right now. And that's well, another think, major wild card heading into November. I think Republicans are so scared of that. And when when they started to be asked about it, when Senate Republicans, Republicans started to be asked about that, they did that familiar dodge of, well, that's not what this election is going to be about. This, so, this election is <laughs> going to be about the Biden administration's failures, blah, 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 right? They do not want to talk about abortion. And when that when that decision drops, that is going to be explosive. And let me just say one other thing that about this whole January 6th and Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, who couldn't be bothered to, to say that that that, that was yeah, just he, he never he bogus. couldn't do it. Right. He, he could just not bogus. do it. He just came up with gibberish. I mean, I wrote down his gibberish. He said, uh, let's see. Oh, boy. Did I write it down? It was so gibberish that I couldn't I couldn't memorize it. <laughs> so typical of Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> anyway, he could he couldn't be bothered to do it. And he's, you know, and he he came up he literally made up something out of whole cloth about what that resolution was about and it bare it bore no resemblance to reality, right? So he's just throwing spaghetti against the wall hoping it sticks. But I just got to say the the RNC is reflecting the mood of grassroots activists, right? Senate Republicans have of decided Donald they need and, and Donald Trump, right? They're yeah. placating. You know, they're they're definitely appeasing. And the basis with Donald Trump. I mean, yeah, they absolutely course. are. But what I'm just saying is that the pressure didn't just come from above. The pressure also came mm. from below, and they are completely out of there. They are like in this hermetically sealed reality with Trump and his grassroots activists. That you know, they they wanted some sort. That first of all, they wanted to draw blood from from Cheney and Kinzinger. And second of all, they want to believe that the January, there was something patriotic about that January 6th insurrection, right? So so they are reflective of the grassroots. Senate Republicans are completely out of touch with that. And House Republicans have made a different bargain that they're just going to cling to Trump no matter what. And this is going to be this is not going away. This is just going to keep happening over and over and over again, because Trump will never get over the fact that he's a loser. Absolutely. All right, Carrie, let's bring our guest on and talk student debt relief. Our guest today is Cody Hunanian. He is the executive director of the Student Debt Crisis Center that is focused on 
student debt and <laughs> really hi cody thank you so much for joining us hey marcos i'm happy to be here and uh our name i think is pretty straightforward and simple student debt and it is a crisis so there's no bones about it uh, what we stand for and what we fight for yeah i was going to explain it and it seemed pretty <laughs> self-evident <laughs> nothing else needed yeah <laughs> so tell us a little bit before we get started talking about the issue it- itself tell us a little bit about yourself how you got into uh into politics and then a little bit about the Student Debt Crisis Center. Well, I am lucky to work on an issue that personally impacts me. So I uh, graduated from the UC uh, uh, University of California, Santa Barbara in 2013 with a mound of student loan debt myself. Uh, I am uh, of the generation that was still reeling from the trauma of the Great Recession, entered a job market that wasn't really working for everyday Americans and particularly young people uh, at the time. And I, like many of the grassroots advocates I know, by the grace of just fate, happened to meet folks who were working on the issue of student loan debt. And mind you, this was before anybody was talking about student loan debt and certainly not talking about student loan debt as a crisis, as an economic issue. The issue today is quite elevated compared to where it was when I first entered. And so I joined the Student Debt Crisis Center uh, about eight years ago. Our organization has about 2 million supporters across the country. Carrie, I heard you describing grassroots organizers on the other side of the aisle, and they sound so scary, but we're grassroots organizers that just represent everyday Americans impacted by student loan debt. Uh, We're really lucky to have passionate, everyday people who share their stories, take action. And they've been working on this issue alongside us for years now. Um, And they've helped us elevate the issue to become what I would say, and I think many would agree, to be one of the biggest issues being discussed in the country, at least when it comes to economics and, you know, individual equity and and financial situations and, and, and the like. So it's been quite a journey seeing this issue evolve over time. It's really exciting. I actually, I, I just, just want to say we support the grassroots here. <laughs> yes, we support re- we support reality based grassroots. That's yeah. what we support. So anyway, wait, we're we're with you. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so I know, Carrie. You've been writing about this subject a lot, and I'm going to let you. Uh, I know you got a lot of questions to ask, but I, I just want to sort of set the table. How big of a problem is this? And then, Carrie, you can take it from there. Yeah, well, I mean, we call it a crisis because it is. We're talking about an issue that has a total of $1.7 trillion across the country. So this student debt problem uh, is second only to mortgage debt. So this is something that we all have to be talking about because the scale and the scope of it is just unprecedented. Um, And then obviously, because we are grassroots and we represent people, there's 45 million Americans with student debt, and it's held mostly by women and black women particularly who are carrying uh, the most debt per person. So there's all sorts of reasons, both economically and socially, why we should be caring about this issue and why we should work towards some, some serious solutions. What do you think is the biggest misunderstanding or misconception when you talk to people about the student debt crisis? That's a great question because part of the work that I've done over the last eight years is try to get through all these misconceptions. I think there are several things going on here. One is that the cost of college and the reality of being crushed by student loan debt has exploded so quickly that we have a generation of Americans who just really can't wrap their head around what kind of crisis we're facing. 
So I hear from older people all the time and, you know, God bless them, but they're like, I had a summer job. I worked at Austin <laughs> minimum wage job. <laughs> I had a summer job, minimum wage job. I paid my way through college. Just bootstrap yourself through college. That just doesn't cut it anymore when you're talking about even a public university mm. costing, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars over a four-year education. So that is new, and many Americans haven't really thought about what the reality is for people entering college today. Um, and then I think on the other side of this equation is the fact that many people do not support student debt cancellation currently because they think it's an, a handout to young people and current students. That's not the reality. The people that are impacted most by student loan debt right now are parents, older Americans, <clears throat> people that have been out of school for you know a certain amount of years. Uh, we have to continue to remind people that the student debt crisis is harming families in America, not just young people and students. And when you frame it like that, all of a sudden people want to care just a little bit more, I think. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. Marcos, you, 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 you got, you got things. Oh, I got, I, I got things. I, I got things. Go ahead. You go. And then, and then uh, I'll, I'll continue. I got I some do. things. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm thinking more problems in, in the solution side and you right now you're still exploring the contours of the issue. So I'll let you go ahead and continue to do that. Well, I, so I would just say, first of all, I mean, I, I view this as an issue of racial, racial justice, right? But I also, like you said, more black women than really anyone affected by, by student debt, by crushing student debt and just not being able to get out from under it. But at the same time, I think is a political imperative that the Biden administration do everything in their power to do something about this. And I, we, you know, we, I spent a lot of time looking at polls and so does Marcos and you can just see the slip. I mean, first of all, there's a lot of white people who are like, this is a trick that it's a racial justice issue. Okay. <laughs> is the, I, I literally had someone in my comments, you know, I see this trick all the time. They said, what well, is the NAACP? you know, playing a trick when it calls it <laughs> racial justice issue. I mean, and you can see it in the polling, like you can see in, in our own polling and civics polling, right? Our sister organization, it's coming. The, the approval rating of Joe Biden has slipped by on the order of 10 points among black Americans, but especially among black voters under 35, it really is just like down. And that's not just about student debt. That's about justice issues more broadly, not getting voting rights, not getting police reform, et cetera. But also this is a really important issue to those folks. And, and they, they don't, they don't see any emphasis on it. They see, you know, they were promised that at least that at a minimum, that's what President, I mean, candidate Biden said, $10,000 would be forgiven. Well, that hasn't been, that hasn't happened. And on top of that, they are now, you know, they have this memo in place where it explored their authority to do this. And this was ordered by the White House. We want the Department of Education to take a look at whether or not the president has the authority to forgive this debt. And the White House hasn't released that memo. It's like they don't want it to come out that he has the authority. If he didn't have the authority, then tell us. But anyway, yes. but I, that's not, I'm ranting now. And no, now go wherever you want to go. Sorry. A lot to back there. I, well, first off, when you, when you started with the racial, racial equity piece, I, you know, I wish we could wave a magic wand and convince everyone that working towards racial equity and you know, economic justice was something that we should all be on board with. I, I don't think we can do that today, 
But it, it's real. Student debt is a racial equity issue because we see how what some researchers have called predatory inclusion has harmed a generation of black and brown Americans just when our institutions of higher education were available to the people that needed it the most to access the middle and upper middle class. We've dumped all this debt on them and pretty much stripped all of the rewards that come from a higher education. So that is a reality and we have to be honest about it and face it. And so I won't shy away from that, but I, I, I hear you. There's plenty of people who don't want to talk about that. You mentioned there at the end, Carrie, the, the memo, and I'll just add some extra context and talk about quickly something that I think about often. Uh, for those that don't know, there is this memo. The president in this administration has deflected the reality that he has the legal authority to cancel student loan debt by saying, okay, well, before I take that action, I want legal experts within the Department of Ed and a Department of Justice to say what everyone else has already said, including Harvard Law, which is that we should cancel student debt or that he has the authority to cancel student debt. <clears throat> right now, there are millions of Americans who are starting to distrust this administration because they're saying, where the hell is this memo? We've heard that it's existed for over eight months and we haven't seen it yet. And so I just want to point out one thing that makes student debt unique and it's part of this issue. There's very few economic issues like this where uh, individuals are owed money directly to the government. And so when borrowers are crushed by student loan debt and they got those loans from the U.S. government, it has a ripple effect where folks have distrust in their government. They don't want to be civically active. It actually has a deterioration effect across so many important institutions like our democracy. And that's not talked about. And right now, this administration, by not releasing this memo, is just adding to that. There is such a, a feeling of distrust and betrayal, really, from uh, American borrowers who want to know why the president won't cancel student loan debt. Cody, as a percentage, how much of student debt is government held and how much of it is privately held? Yeah, right now, federal loans, those are the ones you get from the Department of Education, represent uh, over 80% of the student loan debt in America. Which so, is over a trillion dollars. So it's, over it's one trillion. Yep. If Biden has the authority to forgive 10,000, and if it's 50,000, is the authority theoretically limitless then? Because could he literally sign a paper saying, you know what, all of it, let's just call this a trillion dollar stimulus to the economy. Is that yeah. a thing that could happen? Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely accurate. So the, the law, the Higher Education Act, is what gives the president the authority to direct the Secretary of Education to compromise or waive, it's how, how it's worded, federally held student loan debt. And so there is, really is no limit to what the president could do as far as debt cancellation. And one thing I want to flag there too, Marcos, is there is this debate right now over, should we cancel $10,000 in student loan debt, as the president said, or should we cancel up to $50,000, as some lawmakers are suggesting? The reality is, is the president said he was going to do $10,000 immediately as part of his pandemic response. And he also campaigned on canceling much, much more student loan debt for people who attended public colleges uh, and have debt from tuition. So that 10,000 number, that wasn't even the ceiling for the president. That was the floor. That was his starting point. Uh, in response to the pandemic. And I feel like that detail is important and not discussed enough. Is there any idea then what is, is there, first of all, is there any chance this memo says you do not have the authority and they're too embarrassed to release that? 
I just don't believe it. You know, I'm not an attorney. So I go to the experts at Harvard Law, you know, a reputable, highly reputable. Have you ever heard of them? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> reputable law school. And they say that the, that the law is clear. And so I have no reason to doubt it. And the fact that the administration hasn't released the memo, which, mind you, if it said he can't cancel student loan debt, would be a release valve from all the pressure that the president is facing uh, from the public. The fact that they haven't released it tells me that the legal experts in the administration have come to the same conclusion. Yeah, that yeah, that would be that would be an immediately immediate like get him off the hook thing to be like, look, we we studied this and we don't have the authority. I I think it's really clear that they've concluded they do have the authority and they sure as heck don't want to release that memo. You know, so I want to get back just for a second to the political imperative part of this, Mm -hmm. um, which is which is we're heading into this midterm election. The Republicans are, are handing us some help as we were discussing at the top of the, you know, uh, at the top of the show. And, and, but Democrats have to deliver some things. Now, de- Democrats have delivered some things, but they've delivered very little for a group of younger voters, younger people of color. And, you know, to see, to see black Americans uh, in particular, sort of coming under 70% support for um, in terms of the job approvals for President Biden, that that's kind of horrific, okay, because right, they're the backbone of the of the Democratic Party. So so we the here is one thing President Biden can do without Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. He does not need them to do this. And this is exactly the type of thing when you start looking at a election where you have, you know, where historical trends are pointed against you. And what you do is do as many things as you possibly can on your own. And, you know, the best example of this, and I was in Washington covering this at the time. So I'm like, just, it's so ingrained in my memory is, is president Barack Obama in 2012 going into the election and realizing, Oh my gosh, you know, in 2010, I had a real problem with the base turnout and Democrats got a shellacking and, you know, I need to like, motivate and energize these different constituencies. And he came out for same-sex marriage and evolved on his same-sex marriage stance in an election year, which everyone said was going to be the death of him, right? No. So he he put in place DACA for the Dreamers um, because he hadn't been able to deliver on immigration. And he he stopped the Keystone XL pipeline for um, to as a, you know, as a nod to the environmental activists who were continually, you know, showing up at the White House and protesting him. So and what did he do? He won re-election, right? So people are like, oh, that's gross. You know, you, you know, do that constituency thing. You know what? Republicans every day of their lives, every hour of every day are playing to white identity, right? So they are playing identity politics every hour of every day and democrats can this is something they can leverage this is something the president can leverage and there's no reason he shouldn't be doing it in the midterms rather than waiting until 2024 when he's facing a potential re-election i mean you know assuming he he runs again i don't know but there's no reason he should wait till then do it now do it now. Save the congressional majorities if we can. And this is something he can do. So anyway, I just don't like, do you get the sense that it, within the White House, 
there is there are two factions on this or do you think that the department of education is a little bit more geared towards doing oh oh i've had a i've had an interruption anyway uh our daughter what's holding it up like why is this thing not happening yeah I don't know if I would call it factions, but I can tell you there are staffers within the White House and throughout the Department of Education who really believe student debt is a crisis and really stand for debt cancellation. And, and like every issue, the machine of, govern, of government and the bureaucracy uh, is something that is a bit of a harbinger. What I find very challenging about where we're at in this issue with student loan debt right now is that we're, we're speaking to an audience of one or two right now. You know, we have Susan Rice at the uh, Domestic Policy Council who, uh, who, from what we hear, what we've seen reported, uh, personally stands against student debt cancellation. And this is someone who also has the ear of the president. And I would also flag the president himself, I'm not sure, is entirely convinced how important and how valuable of a win student debt cancellation could be. You know, unfortunately, the president is still someone who says that canceling student debt would help Ivy League students. He doesn't understand that most Americans with student loan debt come from families that make under $100,000. So we have to actually move individuals, move people that have personal principles and perspectives on this issue. And in that way, it becomes a very personalized approach. And we're, we're just now entering that kind of phase when it comes to organizing on this issue. But, you know, Carrie, you are 100% correct. This President Biden is not the first president to face an issue of not delivering on campaign promises and seeing that drag down his approval. Uh, so with debt cancellation on the table, something that would help 45 million Americans, something that would help, you know, black borrowers disproportionately, which, you know, that's a key demographic, a key voting block. It seems like the strategic and savvy approach when it comes to the upcoming midterm elections would be to cancel student loan debt right now. And you're right, that would hopefully preserve a majority in Congress that would give the president an opportunity to pass more in the next term. So uh, the domino effect, the, the ripples of this win could just support and uplift so many other things on the Biden agenda. For all of that, we we think he should take action. And I think there's more discussions in the administration right now about using debt cancellation for that approach. I can't confirm that, but I sense uh, having seen everyday Americans push and push and push and the administration pivot on extending pandemic relief for borrowers, that they are um, they are listening a little more closely to what people with student debt have to say. Right. So Let what me- do you think has been effective then? Sorry. No, go ahead. In terms, of, in terms of lobbying them, what do you think has been effective? Well, I think right now this political argument is absolutely critical. Um, I have been following this administration's uh, approach to student loan debt, obviously from day one. And, you know, uh, in the we had that racial reckoning of a few summers ago um, after the, the killing of George Floyd. And this administration was very much uh, thinking about how this issue could be framed as a res- racial equity issue, which it absolutely is. But, uh, you know, like many issues facing uh, the White House, um, there are cycles and there's kind of waves to all of this. Right now, I think the the sentiment, the overarching sentiment is that the administration hasn't delivered, hasn't secured many wins. Uh, and what can they start to um, put in their pocket for when they really need to come through with a win? Student debt cancellation, I think, is, is readily available. 
You know, it frustrates me that they're waiting, though, because it, it had they done this early last year, it would have sort of built upon the energy like, yeah, we're getting stuff done. This is exciting, right? Now, if they do it, it'll be like, oh, thank God, finally, right? It, it's a different feeling from from relief and like frustrated relief and excitement. And so, yeah, I hope they do it because it's better than nothing. But they, I feel like they're missing out a moment. And the closer we get to the election, the more it'll be seen as a naked political, cynical move as opposed to something that is good policy. Yeah. You know, Marcos, I think that the administration has tried to kind of dip their toe into a student debt win. They they have canceled student debt for uh, disabled veterans. They've made currently existing programs work better for individuals. But it's like teachers, right? And yeah, and, the public service loan forgiveness yeah. program, which has been broken, even though it's promised debt can't forgiveness for over a decade to borrowers. This administration is working to fix that. You know, five years ago, our movement would have said, hooray, these are great wins and we, and we love it. And they are important to the borrowers that receive this relief. But coming out of the last administration, facing the pandemic, we all were part of a wave, Margos, as you described, that of excitement that President Biden could be an FDR type president that could come through with bold visions for the future. Debt cancellation, broad debt cancellation is one of those types of policies. So you're right at this point, if it's these small wins or it's not the big groundswell of progress that we were promised, it does take a little bit of the the wind from our wings. And and I hate to say that because it would still be a big win for millions of Americans. Yeah, you can, you know, you can hear them trying to like square this somehow. When you when you hear Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary asked about this, I've heard grilled on it in the briefing. And she says, well, you know, the truth is, is that no one's had to pay a dime back since, uh, you know, Biden's been president, right? Because of the the deferrals over the course of the pandemic. So they want to have that, right? But at the same time, then their next message is, we're going to, you know, we're going to ease people back into uh, payments, you know, when the time comes. I can't remember their exact language on that, but th- that's what they're saying, you know. So they could like it just kills the whole idea that you're helping people out if you're like, but we're trying to transition people back into into their payments, you know. Yeah, you know, I am hyper focused on what Jen Psaki says on our issue because she's the only signal we have, I think, as far as what's going on internally. Criminology. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, uh, Jen Psaki, uh, one thing I want to point out is prior to uh, the end of the year, she was very stern saying that this is the final, final extension on student loan uh, pandemic relief. And payments were set to resume this week on February 1st. Because of grassroots organizing, we pushed, we pushed, and they extended to May 1st. If you hear her now, she says, if payments resume uh, on May 1st, if they resume. So I am getting a sense that they don't want to dig their heels again and have to pivot and respond, uh, be a responsive policy machine, then get ahead of some of these issues. So I look at those as 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 little wins along the way um, and a little crack into maybe what is going on internally around the discussion uh, with student loan debt. Yeah. And, and to some of our listeners, that may sound like it's splitting hairs or you're just trying to see the silver lining or whatever. I'm just going to tell you that these little things that you hear from the press secretary that you hear publicly 
And their framing of the issue absolutely makes a difference in terms of what they're hearing internally and being told to project outward, right? And most of those press secretaries aren't actually advising the president. They're just trying to reflect what the administration wants to put forward. So it it does matter if she's framing it as if. That makes a big difference. Carrie was uh, was in the press room at the White House, so she she has firsthand knowledge of how that operation works. Well, I agree with her. The the uh, splitting the hair it's really important, Carrie. One thing I want to say too about Jen Psaki's approach here, and I think this is also really really important. I would be surprised if the communications wing of the White House isn't thinking about a different message. And it's not that borrowers haven't made payments over the last two years. It's Donald Trump turned payments off and President Biden turned payments on. And I, if I were them, I would be incredibly Ooh, nervous yeah. about yeah. that message becoming the sentiment after May 1st if payments turn on. Oh, my God, that'd be brutal. Oh, so that would let, be so brutal. Anyway, sorry. So oh, I, let, me, let, me, let me run through some of the arguments against lifting, against student debt relief. Yeah. That I wonder if that's sort of some of these at least are percolating within the White House. One of them would be an argument towards inflation, right? You give people more money, inflation's already high, inflation is hurting us, it might exacerbate things to have 40 million people now with more money. Uh, Another stimulus at a time where the economy is overheated. Uh, Number two, another potential argument is an argument towards fairness. I paid my student loans. How come they get to be special and have their student loans paid? Now, you spoke to this, college is a lot more expensive now than it was, you know, even 10, 15 years ago. So people don't understand that this problem is a new problem, but, but there is that sense of, of fairness. And an extension of that is, well, if you forgive people now, what happens to people who start college next year? Do they get their loans forgiven? Like, why don't they get their loans forgiven? And then finally, there's, there's, there's another one that I've seen percolating that it's, there's a sense, particularly amongst those, those without college education, that um, their tax dollars are subsidizing the college education of somebody else's kids who now have an advantage, economic advantage over their own. So this, unlike, you know, subsidies to big oil, this sort of really generates feelings. And even Carrie writes about this issue all the time. And even our own very liberal community is, is triggered by this. This is one of the touchiest subjects and it, it's deceptively so. I don't think on its, fa- on its face, it seems so blatantly obvious. It's a good policy, right? And moral and ethical and, and economic grounds. It makes lots of sense, but it really does trigger people, right? I, I think all of these arguments are out there, but I have, I think what I would, what I think are fair responses to almost all of these. So <laughs> I will list them off. On, on the inflation side, I, I wish that economics were an exact science, but it is not. And for every economist that says that debt cancellation would you know, add to inflation, there's other economists who say turning back student loan payments for millions of Americans, ripping hundreds and maybe even thousands of dollars out of the pockets of families has a detriment, detrimental effect on the economy. And I would tend to agree. Uh, in fact, one thing that's left out of that argument is payments aren't currently on. People aren't making <laughs> right, <laughs> So they're not going to get a check in the mail for their debt cancellation. It is going to be a continuation of what is now the status quo. And so I think that negates the argument of inflation. And also, I, 
I support policies that help everyday people first. And I think about how this would transform the lives of everyday people before I start getting into a complex economics argument. That's just me. And I think most Americans feel the same way. On the fairness side, I think that's one of the biggest obstacles we face is convincing many Americans that debt cancellation is fair. But I will say that over time, over the 10 years that I've been working on this issue, that sentiment, I think, has shifted. There's, I think, this guttural response. People feel very instinctual that, well, isn't debt, aren't there millions of Americans that say debt cancellation isn't fair? But the polling, recent polling by Data for Progress shows that a majority, actually more people without college degrees support debt cancellation than people with college degrees. Many of these people are folks who tried to get a higher education, got chewed up by the machine, by for-profit colleges, and spit out with a ton of debt and never actually attained a, a degree. And then there's also people who never went to college, but look around, they say, my children, my neighbors, my family, they're crushed by student debt. This is not the America I want to live in. I want us to flourish in the 21st century economy, and I want to do so. We have to educate our citizenry and make it uh, affordable. And on that point, you know, I think there's many people who say, well, is it fair that some Americans get to go to college and don't pay, or excuse me, don't have any student loan debt, and other Americans attend the same institution and come out crushed by debt? That's not fair. So the, the fairness argument has, I think, unlimited. And it's already happening, right? Because wealthy people get to send their kids without any debt, and yep. it is the lower socioeconomic people that get screwed by that system. Yeah, that's a great point, Marcos. You know, when people talk about uh, student debt cancellation going to people uh, who went to college and they think, you know, these are coastal elites or these are people with more money, what they forget to acknowledge is that the, the people, the demographic with student loan debt already excludes wealthy people who paid their way through college and never took out student loans themselves. So when we talk about 45 million Americans of student debt, you know, most of those, if not all of them, needed to take out student loans for a reason. That's because they couldn't afford an education. They weren't incredibly wealthy. Isn't and it true that like 45% of people too, I don't know if that's the exact right statistic, but they didn't actually end up getting their degree. So a lot of people are strapped with, pl- I don't know if I have the exact right, but a lot of people and not an insignificant amount are strapped with paying their student loan debts, but didn't, didn't actually get the benefit of getting the degree that helps push them up and do you know, a better job. Absolutely. So there's a large portion of borrowers who didn't complete their degree. And, and I think when you talk about that fairness, let's frame these discussions around fairness uh, for all of these topics. So is it fair that uh, for-profit colleges can prey on veterans and single mothers, take, a, take uh, up to 90% of their revenue from federal student loans, and then leave borrowers with either no degree or a useless degree? Is that fair? You know, so there are plenty of reasons why we need to cancel student loan debt to wipe the slate clean because our system is broken. It's designed for profiteering and it's put a huge burden on American families. Debt cancellation can can right that wrong and give us an opportunity to reimagine what the future of higher education in America looks like. And that's that last point you mentioned, Marcos. We can't just cancel student loan debt right now. Our organization and nearly every ally I talk to that works on debt cancellation also supports making college free or affordable for most Americans moving into the future as well. It's a two, two-sided two approach. But the president can cancel student debt with an executive action himself, and he can't make college free. That is for Congress. So everyone has a role to play here. Congress can work on college affordability, and the president can cancel student debt. 
Well, there you go. Because if look, if we can get people to the polls because they feel good about what kind of things are happening in their lives, and you know, based on what they went to the what they went to the polls for in 2020, if they start to see some you know some substance here, some meat on the bone, maybe they show up in November, and then we end up with more majorities, bigger majorities, particularly in the Senate. And we can get something like student debt, you know, reform through. I mean, that's not even a conversation right now because we don't we don't have enough, you know, because <laughs> we're yeah. hamstrung by two senators on basically every issue we want to try to push through. You know, when we think about like the post pandemic future of America, you know, I think some folks would hearken back to the post war era and, and what that meant for Americans who we're seeing, you know, their quality of life and, and our economy explode. And, and what did we have back then? We had a GI bill that helped people pay for college. We had free and very affordable education here in California and many states across the country. So these are not radical ideas that we're talking about. We're talking about prioritizing education in America so that we can be the best country that we can be and the best society that we can be. Yeah, just I I didn't pay for my undergraduate. I was a U.S. veteran. the uh, The Army GI Bill was a big part of my my ability to go to school. And then the state of Illinois actually gave me a tuition waivers, so I was able to take advantage of that. And that's that's what allowed me to go to college. And you shouldn't have to join the army to <laughs> to be able to go to college. So, uh, absolutely. So we are pretty much out of time. So Cody, can you let everybody know what they can do? to help you do your job and get all these great things passed, uh, make them happen. Absolutely. So our issue is actually building momentum right now. Our movement is securing wins. So now is the right time to get involved and take action. If you go to studentdebtcrisis.org, you can take action by signing petitions, sending letters directly to lawmakers in the White House, which they do receive and read. I can guarantee you that. And also share your story. Our organization has collected over 80,000 student debt stories over the years. And by having your story, it gets us into the door to, uh, and a seat at the table in front of lawmakers, in front of the White House, and in front of the Department of Education, because they want to actually hear from everyday Americans. So visit our site, take action, share your story, and together we'll be able to actually secure debt cancellation. And the URL for the site? Uh, studentdebtcrisis.org. Yeah, and I just want people to share, I mean, to, to um, I just want to underscore sharing your stories because one of the reasons that Don't Ask, Don't Tell got repealed mm -hmm. is that there were just a flood of stories about people who were, who could talk about being discharged. Um, that's the, the military's gay ban was Don't Ask, Don't Tell, who could talk about being discharged for no good reason and how it, it hurt unit cohesion and how, you know, it wasn't a Don't Ask, Don't Tell situation. And, and the, you know, in some, in some units, you know, military commanders actually came after people and sort of investigated them and how unfair the whole process was. So, you know, when you have a flood of those stories that you can tell over and over again, you can put in front of the White House, you can put in front of lawmakers and whatever, it definitely helps build momentum for an issue. Yeah. And Carrie, you know, uh, similarly, I mentioned just moments ago about the kind of the educational gap when it comes to understanding this issue and sharing stories helps other people who don't understand what borrowers are going through recognize that, you know, choosing between your student loan payments and putting food on the table for your family is, is immoral and unfair. We shouldn't have that type of system in America. So the stories, they're helpful politically, but they're also helpful in just 
persuading our neighbors and families to think of this issue in a different way. That college maybe isn't a hundred dollars a semester anymore, or even a thousand dollars a semester. That now it's about sixty thousand dollars a year plus living expenses. And yeah, Cody Kunanian, exactly. he is the executive director of the Student Debt Crisis Center. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about this very critically important issue. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Carrie, it's 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 such a big. I, I don't understand. I, I still don't understand how Biden is dragging his feet on something so blatantly. I, I don't obvious. understand. I don't understand either, but I, I do. I kind of get a glimmer of hope from talking to Cody. It sounds like it sounds like, you know, he says this is a moment where they're talking about the politics of it. And I think that's really important. Um, you know, the. <laughs> The White House is political, so I'm sorry for people who don't think that that's <laughs> true, but it's political, right? So, like, if they're thinking about the politics of this, that that's a good opening for this issue, issue which, again, I think of is as a justice issue. But, you know, that's, that gives – that crack – gives you a chance to get in people's ears when they start thinking, oh, my God, we don't want to be the president that, you know, turned on payments when Trump per- turned them off. And I've heard people use that. I've heard people say that, you know, tr- if tr- Trump stopped these and now President Biden's going to be the one who starts them. I mean, th- these payments, that is crazy. But, you know, I have to say one other thing, which is and I don't have totally the numbers off the top of my head to back this up. But this nation is facing a crisis in affordability for an entire generation. They can't afford to buy houses. A lot of them are putting off having kids. Or if they have a kid, they have one and decide not to have a second. And I see this anecdotally in stories all the time that I read, you know, in very reputable outlets, right? Um, but and, and I know people, too, who have the same story. Look, if, if we can't get people out from under this, this debt crisis, they might not be able to have a house, but they probably won't have, some of them might not have a kid and some of them might have not have more than one kid. Yeah. If we want to have a labor force, a workforce, yeah. an actual economy it, for, you know, in the generation to come, we got to do, it's a crisis of affordability for this, the generation of millennials and, and Gen Zers coming up. And people who don't feel that, I'm sorry, but it's real. It's real. So anyway. So we're just about out of time, but let me, let me leave us with these numbers. This is from Civics. This is Joe Biden's job approval ratings at civics.com, civics with a Q.com. That's, uh, that's our survey in data arm. Amongst all 18 to 34 year olds, Joe Biden went from about a 55, 50% approval rating down to 25%. Catastrophic fall, but this is even bigger. Amongst 18 to 34 Democrats, 18 to 34 Democrats, Biden went from 81% at the end of the year down to 50% approval today. He's almost got plurality non-approval. That's a 30-point drop in a year, and that can be attributed. They don't care about Afghanistan was, rollout was weak, or or Joe Manchin. I bet you a huge percentage of that, if not the bulk of that, is from lack of student debt relief, because it was promised. And Biden does not want to talk about it. It is a political imperative. We have a tough cycle. Why are you pissing off one of your most loyal um, core base uh, segments of your base? 
Well, and and I, I let me just play off of that for a second too. Like I said, I think for younger people, look, there was a whole generation that went out after the murder of George Floyd and marched in the streets, and they were marching for justice. They were marching for civil rights. They were marching for voting rights. They were mar- marching for police reform. Those are things that Democrats haven't been able to get through. Um, Congress, mostly courtesy of of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Okay, so and and of course, fifty Republicans in the Senate who are united against this stuff for the most part, right? But if you're going to make the argument, hey, we tried really hard, but we just couldn't get this done through Congress, then don't turn around on the issue that you could have done yourself. And say, oh, and we just didn't do that student debt thing that I promised either. Like they can't they can't sell it to this generation that it was really hard and they just couldn't get it done in Congress. But on the issue that they could have taken action on themselves, they didn't get it done either. Like that, that just doesn't pass the smell test. That's not going to motivate people to get to the polls. And I see all the time people, we just have to tell people, you know, this, that, or the other thing. You can't tell people that their life is good and that the the administration has gone to bat, bat for them when they don't feel that their life is good and the administration has gone to bat for them. Yeah, They're not going to so. show up at the polls, folks. Mm-hmm. So, And that's the game then. And then we're in trouble. For a long time. This is the best map we face in six years. So this is our last chance to really get a real Senate majority or at the very least prevent Mitch McConnell from being Senate majority leader again. So, Carrie, that's our show. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much for always being such an amazing host and taking one for the team when you when you mispronounced that last name that was <laughs> Kitzinger's poor, poor, poor Congressman Kitzinger. I mean, like, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, thanks so much to uh, Cody Hunanian of the Student Debt Crisis Center for joining us today to talk student debt relief. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or at Twitter at dailycoast. Thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing, Kara Celaya for promoting, and everybody else in the Daily Coast Brief team. Thank you, the listener, for joining us and being a foot soldier along with us in this critical, important battle for our democracy. This year's everything. Our democracy is on the line, and we are, we are so lucky to have you with us. Thanks so much. Catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.